Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, Dr. Helen Caldicott talks about her new book, Crisis Without End a compilation of presentations made at the March 2013 symposium she produced on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Then she goes on to tell us about her next symposium on nuclear weapons, which will take place in early 2015. You will hear a ton of great new information from Dr. Caldicott, plus the usual nuclear hot seat features of Numbnuts of the Week, activist shout-out, the John Stewart tweet campaign, and enough nuclear information to scare the bejesus out of zombies. All coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 7, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. First, ENE News experienced a temporary blackout earlier today that took it down and had a lot of us really concerned. Whatever the problem was, the site came back up in about an hour. Phew! ENENews.com, if you're not familiar with it, is the best news aggregator we've got for anti-nuclear stories. And Nuclear Hot Seat would be a very different and much poorer show if I didn't have access to its stories and links. This is a non-story by now, but it deserves to be acknowledged because we all rely on ENENews.com for our information. Now for the real news, starting out with this disturbing story. The New York Times reports that there was a mysterious explosion that rocked the Iranian capital of Tehran on Sunday, October 5th, with an enormous orange flash that lit up the skies over the city. Iranian official sources denied that an explosion had taken place at the facility, but later Iran's official news agency reported fire at the explosives factory east of the city. The explosion took place either inside or near Iran's Parchin military complex, which played a role in what the U.S. charges was the government's efforts to develop nuclear weapons. Witnesses to the explosion and fire said all trees in a hundred-yard radius of two villages had been burned. Whether this explosion did have anything to do with the nuclear program of Iran is not yet known. Japan was ravaged by Typhoon Fanfone on Sunday and Monday, October 5th and 6th. The storm registered winds of up to 110 miles per hour, meaning 180 kilometers per hour, and the wave height was up to 37 feet, according to the U.S. Navy. Tokyo Electric Power Company, 
TEPCO, admitted that rainwater flowed into some of the buildings at the Fukushima nuclear plant. The typhoon brought very heavy rain to Fukushima, and TEPCO says an alarm was triggered, warning of a water leak in the turbine building of the number one reactor. Workers found rainwater pouring into the building from an exterior pipe. TEPCO officials also admitted that a water leak was also detected at the number three reactor building, adding that a camera captured images of rainwater pouring in. Of course, the TEPCO spokespeople say that no radioactive water has been leaked outside. Not that they would admit it if it were. They're barely admitting that they leak the radioactive water that goes into the Pacific Ocean at a rate of 300,000 tons a day. Forecasters warned of mudslides that may occur in eastern Japan, specifically Ibaraki Prefecture, which borders Fukushima, and that high waves and strong winds are expected along the Pacific coast in the northeastern parts of the country. And that's where Fukushima Prefecture is. A professor of epidemiology at Fukushima Medical University, stated that a variety of diseases are increasing in the former evacuation zone of Fukushima. At a medical symposium held on October 4th, a Professor Ohira, who is an epidemiologist, stated that diseases of the liver, hypertension, and other diseases are increasing among the local residents. In addition, it is believed that myocardial infarction, meaning heart attacks, and cerebral apoplexy, or strokes, may increase from now. And he emphasized the importance of collecting data on residents' health conditions. After Chernobyl, myocardial infarction was observed to rapidly increase due to cesium-134 and 137 accumulating in heart tissue. However... Fukushima Medical University has already announced that an increase in those diseases is caused by the lifestyle of the disaster victims. That's also what the former Soviet Union said after Chernobyl. Yes, those wild and crazy lifestyles of the displaced and irradiated. Since the Fukushima nuclear disaster began on March 11 of 2011, in Japan, 20 schools implemented decontamination protocols to remove contaminated soil from their grounds. But by the end of this September 2014, four of those municipal schools backfilled the removed contaminated soil back into the ground. The other 16 schools are still preserving the soil in bags. The schools that placed the soil back into the ground, says that their action does not violate the municipal regulation. However, the specific density of radioactive material has not been published. Nuclide analysis results have not been announced either. And when it comes to protecting children from radiation, at least four of these schools are back to square one, doing nothing to protect the kids and leaving them at risk. In a tiny sliver of good news, the Consumer Affairs Agency of the Government of Japan on October 1st published a report that stated that the number of consumers who avoid agricultural products from Fukushima increased by 4.3%. The survey was conducted in the end of August in the disaster area, and the main consumer consumption area included both Tokyo and Osaka. 
The results show that public awareness on food contamination has increased since February of 2013. The actual percentage of those who answered can't accept even small risk increased from 16.6% to 21% between February of 2013 and this October. That's 20% of all respondents. Meanwhile, the percentage of those who answered can accept the risk to an extent decreased more than 5%. This growth in awareness of the potential dangers of consuming Fukushima foods with their possible radioactive contamination suggests that the government's campaign, Support by Eating, is failing. But of course, if food from Fukushima is not being consumed in Japan, they can always ship it over to the United States or Canada, where we have the world's highest level of accepted contamination from radiation in our food. 1,200 becquerels per kilogram in the United States, 1,000 becquerels per kilogram in Canada. So if you live in these two countries, always find out from where your food and your manufactured foods ingredients have been sourced. Speaking of Canada, officials in that country are moving closer to approving a permanent waste depository only one mile from the shores of Lake Huron. And strange but true, it seems to have awakened the Congress of the United States because they are taking action. Last week, Senator Carl Levin, who is a Democrat from Michigan, introduced a Senate resolution asking President Obama to oppose the Canadian proposal for the Great Lakes Basin. A companion resolution was introduced by Representative Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint, Michigan, earlier this month. The Senate resolution is co-sponsored by Senators Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, Mark Kirk from Illinois, and Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin a bipartisan coalition because, let's face it, no matter what your political party, it's no protection against nuclear radiation. Ontario Power Generation is proposing construction of this underground permanent burial facility for all of Ontario's low- and intermediate-level radioactive waste at the Bruce Nuclear Generating Station in Kincardine, Ontario. The waste is highly radioactive, and much of it will remain toxic for more than 100,000 years. To be specific about the proposed site, it is less than a mile inland from the shores of Lake Huron and about 440 yards below the lake level, and all of this is situated approximately 120 miles upstream from the main drinking water intakes for southeastern Michigan. But really... What could go wrong? Don't ask. Just act. The Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe has officially joined the protest. Go to protectlakehuron.com for more information and for an online petition that you can sign. We'll have a link up on the website. Over to the United States for a little bit of good news. A federal judge on Tuesday, September 30th, upheld the U.S. Department of the Interior's 20-year ban on new nuclear mines on 1 million acres near the Grand Canyon. This rejects a challenge by a coalition of mining industry groups that wanted to get that uranium rolling. The lawsuit, led by a manager of the Northern Arizona Uranium Project, 
alleged that the federal government acted improperly when it imposed the ban in 2012. Among other claims, they said that then-Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar, improperly favored Native American claims that the land was sacred. What? Native Americans can't win one for a change? And especially when they're so right? But at the time, Interior Secretary Salazar said that the ban was needed to protect water and wildlife around the Grand Canyon National Park. The ruling by U.S. District Judge David Campbell said the plaintiff's claims were without merit. The decision read in part that the court could not conclude that, quote, the secretary abused his discretion or acted arbitrarily, capriciously, or in violation of law when he chose to err on the side of caution in protecting a national treasure, the Grand Canyon National Park. Ho Matakwiasen. So much for the good U.S. news about nuclear. Here's the rest. At the Hanford site in southeastern Washington, where radioactive waste from as far back as World War II is being stored in double-shelled tanks, the fact that one of those tanks has a leak between the inner and outer shell seems to hold no urgency for the government. The state of Washington has agreed to give the Department of Energy 18 more months to start emptying radioactive waste from that tank when the DOE has known about the problem since October of 2012. Two, count them, two years, no action, and now they get another year and a half. Man, if I'm late on a deadline and don't even start a project until the due date has passed, I doubt that I would get another chunk of time and be kept on the job with absolutely no penalty. But, hey, I'm not part of the nuclear industry. Back to Hanford, the waste is believed to be contained within the shells of the tank rather than leaking into the soil beneath the underground tank. DOE has estimated that the tank, which has a capacity of 1 million gallons, is losing about 30 ounces of waste a week from its inner tank. How they came up with that figure is anybody's guess. The executive director of Heart of America Northwest, a Seattle-based Hanford watchdog group, said federal and state laws require that leaking tanks of any toxic waste must be emptied immediately. He went on to say he had grave concerns about allowing DOE more time to start emptying tank AY-102 when it hadn't started the job in more than two years. Well, Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz Moniz got his wish, and there has been announced a plan to reopen the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, within two years. Yes, by 2016. Not that anybody in touch with the facts or sanity actually believe it will happen. Interestingly, In the World Nuclear News, I think you can tell where they stand on the issue, in their puff piece on this new plan that is coming out, they included a paragraph that read, the recovery plan will be revised as necessary if, quote, substantive new information, end quote, is identified during the ongoing accident investigations and technical assessments. In other words, They've already built in their excuse and their out clause when whatever it is that they say they're going to do ends up not happening. 
Talk about bringing back a clunker from the dead. Idaho's Nuclear Research Laboratory is in the process of refurbishing a 1959 nuclear reactor to restart testing new fuel designs and power levels. That doesn't even make any sense. But, hey, the U.S. Department of Energy is spending $75 million to restart the reactor, known as TREAT, T-R-E-A-T. Can you believe it? Officials at TREAT compared the reactor to a 1959 classic car that was fully restored in the 1980s. But, guys, it's an old design, and it's been up on the blocks for 20 years. What makes you think this is a good idea? So many nuclear numbnuts, so little time. Speaking of numbnuts, here's a trio, all of them courtesy World Nuclear News, my favorite source for knowing exactly what insanity is going on within the nuclear industry. In the number three position, the U.S. and Vietnam have concluded an agreement for commercial nuclear trade, research, and technology exchanges between the two countries. Vietnam already has plans to have two Russian reactors. So the country against which we waged a devastating war that we lost is nuking up and we're helping them do it. As Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation states, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement from the weapons-grade plutonium that is a byproduct of the chain reaction. That's number three. Number two. Russia is offering an early bird special to those who want to join their Fast Reactor Members Club. This isn't even my sarcastic wording. This is what they're calling it. It's coming from Rose Atom, offering early bird incentives to join its International Research Center based on the multi-purpose sodium-cooled fast neutron research reactor or some Russian acronym for it. Those who buy in before 2020 will be charged a reduced fee based on an incomprehensible formula, and those who buy in after 2020 will have to pay $36 million. In addition to reduced fees, the early birds will get free coffee, dessert, and they won't be charged any extra for hot particles with their pancakes. But these guys are pikers compared with Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. At the North Ayrshire, Scotland, Hunterston B. nuclear power plant, cracks were found in two of the 6,000 graphite bricks in the core. But according to station director and spokesmodel Colin Weir, these cracks represent, quote, no safety implications, end quote. Now listen to the double talk. And again, this is coming from the industry itself. Weir said, Every time we take the reactor out of service for planned maintenance, we inspect the graphite core, which is made up of around 6,000 bricks. During the current Hunterston outage, we found two bricks with a new crack which is what we predicted during Hunterston B's lifetime as a result of extensive research and modeling. So, okay, you were expecting two cracks in a lifetime. You've got two cracks. Is that the end of the life of this nuclear reactor? No! He went on to say, 
It will not affect the operation of this reactor, and we also expect that a few additional cracks... You expect additional cracks? We expect that a few additional cracks will occur during the next period of operation. So I guess this is the reincarnation because it's another lifetime. Then he went on. The small number of cracked bricks found during routine inspection is in line with our expectations. So in other words, they expect their own equipment to fail. And we're concluded... The findings have no safety implications and are well within any limits for safe operation agreed with our regulator. Right. If your regulator's in your pocket, no problem coming to agreement. Unbelievable. And that is why the Hunston B nuclear power plant in North Ayrshire, Scotland, is this week's nuclear hot seat. None that's out of week. A bit of good news out of Sweden, which may be facing the phase-out of nuclear power following an agreement by the country's Social Democrats and their junior coalition party, the Green Party, go green, to set up an energy commission tasked with achieving a 100% renewable electricity system. The Greens want to see more of Sweden's reactors closed in the next four years, and I can't say I blame them. It would require replacing only 40% of Sweden's power supply that comes from nuclear energy. You know, guys, piece of cake. Go talk with Germany. In Norway, much higher levels of radioactivity than normal have been found among the country's grazing animals, especially its reindeer population. This according to a study released this past Monday. Almost 30 years after the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl exploded, This autumn, more radioactivity has been measured in Norwegian grazing animals than has been noted in many years. This implies that Fukushima radiation is involved. In September, 8,200 becquerels per kilo of radioactive cesium-137 was measured in reindeer from central Norway. In comparison, the highest amount at the same place in September 2012, two years ago, was 1,500 becquerels per kilogram. So I guess this Christmas the other reindeer won't be able to make fun of Rudolph's glowing nose because they'll all be glowing too, all over from the inside out. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment, but first, looking for a good read? One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond is my ebook on what it means to be only one mile from a nuclear reactor meltdown while it's happening. Now, I say it's a good read, but here's what one of the reviews on Amazon had to say. A roller coaster of a read, dramatic, informative, funny, vivid. Five stars. Extremely well written. Libby Halebi tells a compelling story of what could happen to any one of us when a nuclear reactor malfunctions or, as is happening right now in New Mexico, a nuclear waste depository leaks. You can get the book on Amazon, and the Kindle software is free for any device. Now for this week's interview. I am again honored to be speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott. She is a pediatrician, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee for her founding of Physicians for Social Responsibility, the author of seven books, and a veteran of more than 40 years of anti-nuclear activism. 
I've referred to her variously on Nuclear Hot Seat as the mother of us all or the current incarnation of the goddess Athena. But what she is, is one of the most passionate, articulated, and influential activists on the entire range of nuclear issues. I spoke with her earlier today, October 7, 2014, about her new book, Crisis Without End. Dr. Helen Caldicott, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Your new book, Crisis Without End, is based on presentations at the March 2013 Symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. This was an event that you produced, and I was fortunate enough to be able to attend in New York. Give us first your thinking behind creating this event and what it consisted of. I was very disgusted, I guess, at the lack of information and knowledge of the journalists who covered the event, and I still am, from a medical perspective. And so I decided to organize a symposium and attract as much media as I could in order to educate the media. However, not came, but a lot of people came, and it was broadcast to 3,065 outlets around the world. So it did get to a lot of people, but I'm afraid my initial goal of educating the media wasn't too successful. Educating the media is always a challenge at best. Your list of presenters at the symposium reads like a who's who of the scientists, doctors, and researchers on the cutting edge of investigating the impact of nuclear radiation on all aspects of life on Earth. How did you determine who you were going to invite, and how difficult was it to get them all together at the same time? Well, it wasn't so difficult, actually, I I guess because I'm quite well known amongst these sort of scientists, and most people I called to ask if they would participate leapt at the idea and were thrilled. It was hard to get Naoto Khan, the former Prime Minister of Japan, during the accident, to make a video presentation, but he did, and it was wonderful. And the other woman who was on the committee set up by the Diet to investigate the whole Fukushima disaster, she was terrific as well. But everyone else was relatively easy to get to come. Some of the scientists were cautious because they didn't want to be seen as anti-nuclear activists per se because it might threaten their ability to get grants and the like. But they came, and they were terrific participants, and it was a very educational situation. I was particularly impressed by the presence of Alexei Yablokov, who came from Russia and without whom the world would know far less about Chernobyl. What was the nature of the presentation that he gave? Well, Alexei's a wonderful man, and he co-edited the book called Chernobyl, published by the New York Academy of Sciences, in which... 5,000 papers written in Slavic were translated into English, and it's the only book of its kind which documents all the various diseases caused by the Chernobyl meltdown and documents the areas of contamination in the Belarus and the Ukraine and Russia and, and all across Europe. And it's a fascinating read for a physician. Now, people will say, well, it's not properly peer-reviewed. Well, so what? It doesn't matter. It's just a treasure trove of information. One of the most important and fascinating books that I've ever read in my medical career. Now, Alexei Yablokov was the main 
author or editor who put it together. He's a lovely, lovely man, absolutely dedicated to getting the information out to the world about the fact that by now over one million people have died as a result of Chernobyl, which violates what the International Atomic Energy Agency and the World Health Organization and UNSCIAR say. They're all wrong. None of them got boots on the ground to look at patients and to diagnose them and stratify them so we knew how many patients in each area were affected by certain diseases. All they did, these UN agencies, was estimate, guesstimate, the amount of radiation that got out from Chernobyl, and then they guesstimated the doses that people received, which is absolutely ridiculous. They downplay and underplay the tragedy of the situation, and the WHO, World Health Organization, has an agreement with with the IAEA that it will not investigate any nuclear accident without the permission of the International Atomic Energy Agency, whose mission it is to promote nuclear power around the world. So you see, they're totally compromised. So Yablokov is just a wealth of information about what's going on post-Chernobyl. The sense that I got being there, first of all, was that over the two-day period of time, it was absolutely a 360-degree tour of what was known at that time about what was happening because of nuclear radiation and the whole nuclear military-industrial complex to the world and in the world. And I know that I found the information, for all my familiarity with it, completely overwhelming to have that much in that concentrated a period of time. As the event ended and we moved on, what do you feel was the nature of its lasting impact? Well, it certainly educated many hundreds of thousands of people around the world, I think, but not the media necessarily. And in fact, it was such an important event, you know, and it really didn't hit the headlines at all. The book that's just come out, which is the Proceedings for the Symposia, Crisis Without End, my publisher, who's a very experienced, very wise publisher, said it was sitting on her table and she'd seen it for the first time. She said, A, it's a beautiful book, but B, it's one of the most important books she's ever published. And I got a hell of a shock because it hadn't occurred to me that that's what she would think. And now she wants to send it out to all sorts of media free so that they read it and educate themselves. So there's a second tier, you see. Although the media didn't attend the symposium per se, maybe they will through this book. The symposium happened in March of 2013, and it's been more than 18 months for the book to come out, for Crisis Without End to be published. Why did it take so long? Well, it took so long because, A, all the speeches had to be transcribed. B, they all had to be edited to make sense. And, you know, giving a speech isn't the same as writing an article. C, it had to be sent out to all the presenters to make sure that they agreed with the changes that had been occurring during the editing process. Then they all had to send it back. Some were diligent and some took quite a while to send back their manuscripts. So all in all, it was a long process. It was kind of like herding cats in a way. But we got there in the end. We had a terrific person at the New Press working on it. And my executive director, Marley Lightfoot, who actually put together the symposium, she was terrific in editing and reading the whole thing. And finally, it's been published. Yes, I wish it had been published earlier in the spring, 
However, it's never too late. With so much more that we know now than we did when the symposium took place, just by the passage of time, how relevant is the information in the book? Are the chapter transcripts updated in any way? Are there additional footnotes? Is there any kind of updating appendix on the book? Uh, no, there's no updating appendix of the book, but when the presenters went through their manuscripts, they did actually upgrade them as they went. It is still totally topical because it has a wealth of information about radiation, Chernobyl, which can be applicable to the Fukushima disaster, oceanographers talking about ocean contamination and what happens to food chains. It's the only publication of its kind, I believe, in the world that has all this very important scientific data which will be applicable for years to come. I know that I found the overview coming from those two days to be so intense and so all-encompassing that really anyone who knew nothing about the issue, if they could manage to sit there for the entire two days, would have a complete understanding of exactly what we face here on the planet. Now we have the book, Crisis Without End. Who would be your target market, other than everybody and other than the media, which you already mentioned, where would you like this book to go? Whose hands would you like this to be in? I want it to be in all the mothers of the United States of America and indeed in Taiwan and China and Japan and the like, because it's the women who really understand this. We have the nurturing hormones of oxytocin and progesterone and estrogen, and innately we understand nurturing of life on the planet indeed, not just our children and grandchildren. And they get it quickly. The, the people who are rising up the most in Japan are the mothers. And Japan's a very autocratic society, but the mothers are absolutely incensed. They're not getting the data they need. The doctors are not telling them the truth. The doctors have been told they're not to tell the patients their symptoms could be related to radiation. They're only looking at thyroid cancer. Incidentally, now 103 children in the Fukushima prefecture under the age of 18 have developed thyroid cancer, which is unheard of, except the Chernobyl survivors, and there's a very high rate of thyroid cancer amongst them. The normal incidence of thyroid cancer in this population is one or two per million. So clearly this is the tip of the iceberg, and underneath the tip will be hundreds or thousands more cancers developing not just over this generation, but many future generations, as the food there will be radioactive for hundreds and thousands of years, as it will be in Europe. So the mothers, the women, are the most important people, I think, to get the book. And, you know, most, actually, revolutions in the world have been led by women, including the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, or initiated by women, but the women have been written out of history. So we're the movers and shakers, and we innately understand these dangers. What can we do to help with your outreach on the book, especially to women? I also have as a particularly fond target libraries because then a book can get into multiple hands with a single copy. Oh, it must go into the libraries. Look, I don't know how you can help except you've got a radio station which promotes certain issues like this one, and I think that you're doing a remarkably good job in promoting the book. I can't think of what else you could do to help, except tell all your friends and all your relatives and bring it up at the Thanksgiving dinner and 
Christmas dinner and the whole thing, you know? Oh, and also give it as a present under the Christmas tree. Oh, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought of that. I understand from Molly that you are now organizing another symposium to take place early next year, early 2015, which is going to focus on nuclear weapons. Tell us what you can about it. So it's called The Dynamics of Possible Nuclear Extinction, and I'm doing this for three reasons. One, the administration has just announced that it will spend up to $1 trillion over the next 30 years replacing every single nuclear warhead, missile, ship, submarine, and plane to the tune of $1 trillion when Americans don't even have free health care. A. B. The situation in the Ukraine is very deleterious. For the first time since the Cold War, Russia and America are confronting each other militarily. And what people don't know is that they both have over a 1,000 hydrogen bombs in missiles on head trigger alert that can be launched with the press of a button with a three-minute decision time by Putin or Obama. These situations are tenuous because we have been close to nuclear war on numerous occasions in the past. The yearly warning satellites have been set off by a rising moon or a flock of geese. Someone plugged a war games tape into the computer system and everyone was alerted thinking there was nuclear war. And I could go on and on. A man called Eric Schlosser has just written a book called Command and Control documenting many of these near misses. So we're in a very serious situation and America's pushing Putin into a corner. Now, Putin is probably a little paranoid, and we know in medicine you don't threaten paranoid patients because they're likely to do something dangerous either to themselves or to you. That's the second thing, and it's really extraordinary to me that the press is not covering this adequately. And the third thing is that recently over 70 officers in the missile silos in South Dakota and Colorado and the like, I flew over them yesterday actually, have been dismissed because they were taking drugs, they were cheating on their tests, or they weren't well prepared for launching their weapons if they had to, which is, of course, would end life on Earth. And also the chief officer of all these missile silos went to Russia recently and got drunk, cavorted with naughty women, and did a lot of bad things, and he's just been fired too. The computers at those missile silos uh, use floppy disks, if you can believe it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because Leslie Stahl did a thing on this on 60 Minutes recently, which is absolutely excellent. And also they have telephones that don't always work. There are two men in each missile silo, each armed with a pistol, one to shoot the other if one shows signs of deviant behavior, but it's very possible the deviant one could shoot the normal one. So things are very tenuous, and I think we're in a situation almost more dangerous now than we were at the height of the Cold War, and I helped to lead the nuclear weapons freeze movement in the 80s, simply because no one knows and no one is paying attention and I read recently that Putin has put his nuclear missiles on a higher-than-normal state of alert. And you may be sure STRATCOM has too. So I am actually addressing the National Press Club tomorrow at 3 o'clock, if anyone wants to come, about this issue with the Ukraine. And the Ukraine has 15 large nuclear power plants. 
Now, you really can't fight a conventional war in a country with nuclear reactors because one missile could cause a meltdown like Chernobyl, and Chernobyl is in the Ukraine. <laughs> and the Ukraine is still very radioactive, and a lot of people are getting cancer. So the whole thing is really ludicrous. Not just ludicrous, disastrous, because people don't know. Can you tell us any of the speakers who are already lined up for this new event next year? I actually can. Eric Schlosser, who wrote Command and Control. Seth Baum, who's going to talk about global catastrophic risk. Max Tegmark is a professor of physics at MIT. Oh, the other reason I'm holding it is I read an article in the Atlantic Monthly recently about artificial intelligence. And within 10 or 15 years, computers are going to be taking over almost everything that humans do, including planting crops, harvesting the crops, growing the food, everything. But Stephen Hawking and Max Tegmark and others who are doing this work are very concerned that A, you can't program conscience or morality into computers. B, computers will be so intelligent they may be reproducing themselves. And C, there's a possibility they themselves could start a nuclear war. And that's why a part of the conference will be on artificial intelligence. Next, I've got Hans Christensen from the Federation of American Scientists who will address the current size of the global nuclear arsenals. Bill Hartung will discuss the inordinate power and pathological dynamics exercised by U.S. military industrial complex. You know, when they started bombing ISIS, the stocks for Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and all the rest of the ugly killing firms went up. So that says everything. Greg Mello from the Los Alamos Study Institute, the role and funding of the nuclear weapons laboratories. John Pfeffer, Institute of Policy Studies will compare the money spent on the U.S. military industrial complex compared with the paltry amount spent on the prevention of global warming. Bruce Gagnon, Global Network Against Weapons, will talk about ongoing and dangerous militarization of space. Bob Alvarez, who worked with Hazel Henderson in the DOE, will discuss lateral proliferation and describe how a small nuclear exchange could trigger a global holocaust. Alex Rosen, a, a doctor and international physician for the prevention of nuclear war, will describe the horrific medical implications of nuclear war. Holly Barker, who's an anthropologist, will describe the teratogenic and genetic pathology related to U.S. nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. Alan Robock from Rutgers will outline his pioneering work on nuclear autumn and nuclear winter. He's a Meteorologist Lynn Eden, a wonderful woman, wrote a book called Whole World on Fire, discussing the huge subject ignored by the Pentagon, the effect of Holocaust firestorms following nuclear war. Jan Nolan, a brilliant woman from the Elliott School of International Affairs, will outline the underlying psychological pathology of the nuclear warriors. Mike Lofgren, Anatomy of the Deep State will describe the underlying pathology of U.S. capitalism leading to this current tenuous nuclear situation. Susie Snyder from Pax Christie in the Netherlands will talk about a report they've just done called Don't Bank on the Bomb, all the banks involved in the development of nuclear weapons. Hugh Gustafson, anthropologist, will describe his anthropological research after spending a year at the Los Alamos labs amongst the designers of nuclear weapons. Robert Shear, who I have to contact yet, 
was the author of Star Warriors who researched the young men who do the research on nuclear weapons development at Lawrence Livermore Labs. Noam Chomsky, you all know about Chomsky, will present the pathology within the present political system that could induce extinction. Tim Wright, who's the director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, will talk about what he's doing, and then I will sum up the end of the symposium called An Urgent Prescription for Survival. That is a stunning lineup of individuals and content. When is this going to take place, and where can people get information about how to participate? Okay, um, we're just putting up a new web page now at the Helen Caldicott Foundation dot org, and it will be posted there. It will take place on February the twenty eighth and March the first, which is a weekend in New York at the New York Academy of Medicine, the same place where I held the symposium last year on the Fukushima situation. And undoubtedly there will be a book that comes out of this symposium as well. Well, my editor says she's interested in that, about which I'm very pleased. (laughs) That's great. I did catch another interview that you granted to Talking Stick, and you spoke briefly about what you are planning your next book to be, not one that you edit, but one that you write. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I've been thinking about this book for 10 years or so, and it's going to be called Why Men Kill and Why Women Let Them. Unless we get to the pathology inherent in killing, we'll never stop it. And if we don't stop killing, we're going to destroy life on the planet for sure. And so I want to look at the brain. There's been a lot of work done on hormone receptors in the brain and the influence of hormones upon human behavior, like testosterone and the like. And I need to look at sociopaths. One in 25 people are sociopaths who are brilliant, erudite, attractive, but have no social conscience. If you want to see a sociopath operating, go and see Gone Girl. The sociopaths are very neurotic And they rise to the top like cream in corporations, in government and the like. And, you know, there's Rumsfeld and Cheney. I mean, I can name lots and lots of them. And they tend to run the world. And so I want to examine sociopaths and why we let them go and why we don't, you know, discipline them or maybe put them in jail, actually, sometimes. I want to look at the role of religion in war, why God is always on the side of the killers. Um, (laughs) I want to look at the patriarchy of religion in all religions, including the Buddhist religions, and I'm very fed up with patriarchy. I want to look at why women are so tentative and let men do certain things, or why when I was premenopausal I was attracted to alpha males. You know, I couldn't help it. What's the sociobiology in that When we were in caves, was it necessary for us to mate with strong men who would kill the saber-toothed tigers while we breastfed our babies in the caves sort of thing? Why do we glorify war? Why is there a killer on a horse in every square in Europe? Why does Napoleon, who is a sociopath who kills thousands of people, have a big tomb in Paris? What is this about? Why do we talk about national security, for God's sake, when it's really all about blowing up the planet at this time? I mean, there's so much pathology within this. And as in medicine, if we don't diagnose the cause of a disease, like what caused infantile paralysis, and I've just watched the Roosevelt series, until Jonas Salk and John Enders found the polio virus, we couldn't cure it. And now we can prevent it. And that's called the etiology of a disease. 
So I want to look at the etiology of killing. I hope that when you do your research on the book, you will also take into consideration any history of childhood abuse, especially sexual abuse, in setting up individuals to be the killers that they are and be the sociopaths that they are, because it's my belief and background that there is a strong correlation between sociopathic behavior and a history of sexual abuse. Yeah, I'll be looking into that, too. I'm going to look into everything. Terrific. If listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat want to help support your work, what's the best way that they can do oh, so? Oh, look, that's a great – that would be a great help because I'm presently raising money for the next symposium. They can go to my website, HelenCalderCockFoundation.org, and there is a donate button there. They can actually write to me via my email, and I'll give it out. It's H-C-A-L-D-I-C at BigPond, B-I-G-P-O-N-D dot com. And we can exchange views via email. Anything that you would like to add at this time that perhaps we haven't had a chance to cover? Yes, I want to quote President Jefferson who said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. And this democracy is totally ill-informed, uninformed, in fact, led by a fellow countryman of mine, Rupert Murdoch, who now broadcasts to two-thirds of the world's population. When television was first developed, there was a wonderful man in England called Dennis Potter who actually wrote The Singing Detective, a wonderful series on TV, and he saw the potential in TV to educate people. But unfortunately, television has been taken over by the corporations to sell all their stuff, like hemorrhoid cream and stuff for erectile dysfunction and stuff. To, I mean, it's really obscene. And so they determine the content. And even PBS now, or NPR, takes, they call underwriting, but advertising. Therefore, they've compromised their neutrality. And it's very serious. And people are shown god-awful stuff on television, which sort of numbs out their brain and they go into sort of alpha wave activity and accept everything that's pumped into their brains very quickly and tend to buy the stuff that's advertised. So it's imperative that the media, the media is determining the fate of the earth now, the media. And so that it's imperative that people hear this information over the media. What people can do, and I had a friend in Australia called Jean Minards who used the talkback shows to educate people. And every time she rang a talkback show, she'd disguise a voice. So one day she was Mrs. Brown, and the next day she was Mrs. Green. And, and she did a hell of a lot of education. And also I would like to emphasize that this is a democracy, although at the moment it's a corptocracy. But, you know, you are the leaders. Your politicians are your followers. You are the leader. They represent you, including a president. You are his leader. And unless you go every time your congressperson or senator comes to town to his or her office and educate them and say, look, if you don't read this book, Crisis Without End, I'm going to make sure you're not re-elected next time. And then you will go and door knock before the election and teach the people of his or her electorate what this is all about and beat them. Now, that means not sitting at your computers doing Twitter and Facebook and emails. That means getting out bodily, 
using your intelligence, taking doctors in to educate your politicians and getting them to understand the dangers under which we live at the moment. Dr. Caldecott, your work has been inspirational and certainly impacted me from Three Mile Island forward. And just one final question. On behalf of activists around the world, if Fukushima goes south or there is a nuclear incident in the Ukraine that contaminates the Northern Hemisphere, how much room do you have on a living room couch for us to come and stay? <laughs> well, Australia is a huge place, and it's mostly all desert. It's not very compatible with life, but, you know, and you, it's hard to get into Australia now. We're turning back refugees, actually, violating international law. But, you know, if, like Israel, you... You work out how to irrigate the desert. Maybe there's room down there for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd check while I had you on the line. Okay. Dr. Helen Caldecott, you are an inspiration to us all, and please keep us informed so we can help build the PR for your next okay. symposium. And in the meantime, we'll all be looking for and purchasing Crisis Without End. Thank you very much for being Thank on Nuclear Hot Thank you very Dave. much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Helen Caldicott. Her new book, Crisis Without End, has been published and is available everywhere. So buy a copy and let's talk it up and also the symposium that's going to be taking place February 28th and March 1st on nuclear weapons in New York City. Hey, do you appreciate the kind of information that you get on Nuclear Hot Seat that you can't get almost anywhere else? Well, you can if you read E&E News, but for most people, this is it. So if you like what you hear, or even if you don't like it, you simply appreciate it, help keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations to meet the bills and stay available. You can make a single donation, the equivalent of a cup of Starbucks. You can add the price of a nosh if you don't feel like having it end up on your thighs. You can sign up for small recurring monthly payments, or put us on your year-end gift-giving list. Yes, it is that time again. If you find that Nuclear Hot Seat makes you think, laugh, helps you understand the nuclear issues and deal with what you are hearing, help us keep doing it. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red Donate button. Whatever you can do to help, you'll never understand just how much it is necessary and appreciated. Activist shout-out. Well, congratulations to Boston-area activist Sheila Parks. She wrote an article for opednews.com entitled Fukushima, Miso Soup, and Me. Sheila uses miso, which is fermented soybean paste, to explore an entire range of issues based on radiation contamination of food in and from Japan and how it impacts food safety in the United States. Extensively footnoted, beautifully written, subtly powerful. We will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 172. Or you can just Google Fukushima Miso Soup and Me, and the link will come up. Great reading. Kudos to you, Sheila. By the way, she was also a brief interview two weeks ago on the Nuclear Hot Seat Climate Change March special. John Stewart, for your third segment on the show, the one where you talk with authors of controversial books about what makes their books so controversial, 
why don't you talk with Dr. Helen Caldicott about her new book? She would make a perfect interview for you. She's sharp, witty, articulate, and what could be more controversial than the subject no one wants to talk about? The N-word. Nuclear. Even you've been having trouble doing it, though you know, John, and I must acknowledge your progress. Don't think I didn't catch a glimpse of that U.S. nuclear facility and the quote from Fox News, a new terror threat coming that could kill millions of Americas through the power grid. Now, if that doesn't describe nuclear, nothing does. It was on your October 2nd show in the story about Ebola and false panic in the media. The clip went by fast, but there it was. You can't hide from me. So do yourself and the world some good. Go ovaries out on nuclear and get Dr. Caldicott on the show, John. You will not regret it. Final thought for today. Did you know that Ken Burns, the filmmaker famous for his PBS series, usually set at times when there was no film, but he did series on the Civil War, jazz, baseball, and many, many more. Did you know that Ken is currently working on a series about cancer? It's called The Emperor of All Maladies, and it's currently in production, probably close to post-production, for airing in spring of 2015. Question. Does this show deal with nuclear radiation as a source and ongoing contributor to our rising cancer rates? Is that connection made? This is a question to be asked, specifically by those of you who are contributors to your local PBS stations. You can go to pbs.org. We will have a link up on the website to their email contact form so that you can just float this idea. And maybe we can bring to Ken's attention the need to make that nuclear connection if he has not already. If nothing else, he'll know we're watching. And it just might be enough time to make a difference in the final show. Let's give it a shot. What do you say? In closing... This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 7, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, long may you wave, AccuWeather, AP, NHK, the U.S. Navy, Fukushima Daiichi Worker, Happy 11311, Fukushima Diary and our friend Iori Mochizuki, nativenewsonline.net, thenewsherald.com, cronkitenewsonline.com, tricityherald.com, ktvb.com, the New York Times, dunrenard.wordpress.com, thestar.com, those crazy numbnuts at the World Nuclear News, and the strong yet sensitive Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. You are invited to join us, friend us, and tweet to John Stewart and Ken Burns about us. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on AirProgressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes. You can subscribe under podcasts to get a new one every week. And you can find us also in our back podcasts on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed to not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have my permission to reuse this material as long as proper attribution is provided. 
This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.